All right, this is Darker Days Radio, episode number 88. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Hey, yeah, good. Back from UK Games Expo from last weekend, and uh, I just played some Guild Ball this morning. So, um, yeah, it's been good. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, good to have you back. And also joining us are two international podcast superstars, Brendan Carrion and Adam Sink from the Full Metal RPG. Welcome aboard, guys. Thanks for having us. It's so great to be here. We're so stoked. It's good to be on. We've been wanting to do this for a while, so it's a pleasure to be here and an honor. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into Full Metal RPG and all that cool stuff, let's uh, talk a little bit about our gaming. Chris just brought up uh, how he was playing Guild Ball. You were uh, playing as the Ratcatcher team, right? Yeah, so um, I haven't actually played a single game with them uh, until today, and it was um, a release tournament for the Falconers Guild, so the rules of today's game was very weird. So everyone counted as flying, so we could ignore terrain, no putting blows, all this weird shit going on. It really fucked with the game. But yeah, they're really fun. Very different shenanigans galore with them. Quite flavorsome. They have this disease mechanic. So uh, when you like attack people and you do well, when you end your activation near things, characters with disease put disease on other characters, and then they can spread it around as well. So you can you can really grind down the enemy like quite slowly. So it's, um, yeah, and plus are decent models. They're actually some of the best one that um, Steamforge have done in their uh, plastic. Uh, kits so it's quite cool so yeah that's basically been my gaming other than uk games expo nice i like it and uh adam uh, you've been doing anything good yeah so we've been running a, a club the for our podcast the full metal rpg friday night role-playing club and i've been running mutant year zero as part of that and that actually Ooh. just wrapped up rather explosively last night so <laughs> be running something else after this Nice, nice. And uh, Brendan, how about yourself? Yeah, um, for that club, I was running uh, World of Darkness, a um, like kind of like a module that I like an adventure I put together. I'm gonna be putting it together like as a module for the the patrons on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely like running it as like World of Darkness Blue Book First Edition, uh, which I just I just love that game so much, um, and just the way it's just like it's a classic, very tight horror game. And I finished that up about a week ago because they knew I was going to be in L.A., so um, we, we had an extra meeting. And uh, next time we meet, I'm getting started on Trail of Cthulhu. So I'm going to be oh, running Trail of Cthulhu at Gen Con. And uh, I wanted to have some practice sessions in with the material I'll be running at Gen Con. So that's what I'm starting there next time. Also, I'm like a, I'm a bit of a war gamer too, like Chris. So uh, I've been kind of fatting on um warpath by mantic lately so, oh right okay yeah um i've i've looked at it i'm i'm gonna be honest mantic's models suck balls <laughs> <laughs> they really do but um it's it's a it's meant to be a good alternative rule system if you kind of want that kind of classic warhammer feel yeah i think so. it has a i feel like when you read the warpath core book it feels like uh uh, fourth edition Warhammer came to a fork in the road, and it went one way with fifth edition, and it went another way with Warpath. And um, did, while while it's really easy to sub in your Warhammer models, you can just like yeah. take if you have Space Marines, you can play Space Marines like without any difficulty. The the the, the analogous models are just it's very obvious, you know. Yeah. But um, that having been said, I do think that some of their lines have a certain charm to them. 
I've been kind of, I've been kind of getting into that too. The way that they're not like just like hyper detailed, hyper realistic. The way that GW has been going. You are gonna freaking love it when um, look out for Parabellum. They're bringing out a game called Conquest, and I think the rule system to that is quite innovative. So uh, it's kind of got that classic kind of rack and feel, but it's mass combat like Warhammer. So nice. Uh, we've got. I've got an interview I need to edit up for next week. I think with those guys, and it looks really great. I'll also, be looking for it. Yeah, it sounds good. And it's plastic, actual hard plastic. These guys are like funded by some Greek freaking ship shipping tycoon. Like, and they just done out of the box. Like, here's a box of like eighty miniatures for eighty euros, and it's a full war game. And I was like, "You fucking what? Who's the who does this? Only Games Workshop does this out of like you know the starting blocks." So it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, well, that sounds cool. Anyway. <laughs> Nice, and I've done absolutely no gaming whatsoever since the last time we recorded, so uh, uh, it's, uh, it's my problem. Actually, the big news is that the local game store, which was only like a half mile away from me, maybe like three quarters of a mile, just closed down. What? And, yeah. Is, is this the one that's like the basement that you were talking about with Chig? Uh, no, this is uh, the one, this is the only one that was not a basement, so I guess the rent was too high, oh, no. you know? <laughs> Uh, awful gentrification forcing gaming stores to shut down. That yeah, sounds very much. similar to the UK. Yeah, we yeah. just need to find a Greek shipping magnet to set you guys up, and you'll be yeah, open. right. Yeah, I'll put the feelers out there for that one. Nice. All right. So yeah, today's episode is going to be uh, you know just talking with the Full Metal RPG crew uh, over here, and you know discussing some of their cool stuff they've got going on, and seeing what they think about all you nerds out there, and also of course some of the White Wolf news. Sweet. So, uh, of course, V5 pre-orders are still going on for the Vampire 5th Edition, uh, being published by Modifius, uh, of course, written by White Wolf. And, you know, I wanted to see what uh, Brendan and Adam think about Vampire 5th Edition, what they've seen for the pre-orders. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, okay, so if, uh, if, if, if people on, on Darker Days know us, they, they might know us from a podcast that we were doing. It's kind of like a splinter podcast from Full Metal RPG called Shadowstorm Radio Hour that was oh, yeah. dedicated entirely to World of Darkness Gaming. And um, we did that show, and honestly, I feel like when I look back at it, like giving it up, was really difficult because I got some of our best ratings of any episodes that we did. People really respond to the world of darkness and, and it's understandable why we love world of darkness. You love world of darkness. Everybody loves world of darkness, but we were just feeling like our commentary is becoming very kind of like samey and very negative, honestly, just you feel, mm. felt like we didn't really have a lot to contribute that was positive. So we kind of decided to put the show on hiatus and kind of just see how things played out for fifth. Now, that having been said, we went to Gen Con and we did some demos of the second quick start for fifth. That, yeah, Rusty. You know, Matthew days. Dawkins was there and he was, well, they were working on, they were working on the, the mechanic like in real time as we were, as we were running these, these demos. What was it called, Adam? Whoa. It was Rusted Veins was what it was called. And they were working on the hunger mechanic. So there was a lot of like, yeah. there were a lot of things where it was impossible to generate, uh, the result because of how they were changing the hunger mechanic as we played. 
Whoa, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that at, at Gen Con they made the deal with Mark Hagen to come aboard because they announced it like a week later. Um, and so what I saw during those play tests, I thought was very positive. I liked the way the game felt. I liked the way the new kind of angle on some of the old clans that felt like they were like legitimate homage. They were legitimate extensions with a sort of like a new way of looking, a more modern and contemporary way of looking at all of these old ideas. Um, that having been said, I'm not like in love with what I consider to be their art direction. Their art direction leaves me like really cold. And I've been pretty vociferous about this on the um, Full Metal RPG Facebook, where mm -hmm. I just really don't like their photo manipulation um, style of art direction. And I get this feeling because they, they because New White Wolf, Paradox White Wolf, keeps emphasizing this kind of like LARP approach. And Erickson and those guys all come from this Nordic LARP background. And I keep feeling like, well, the focus seems to be kind of on, like, cool kids hanging out in posh clothes, looking cool, acting cool. And that was just never, to me, the thing that was the White Wolf thing. I mean, I know that they wanted that to be the White Wolf thing, but I never – that was never what I got out of White Wolf. You know, what I got out of White Wolf was it was an amazing system. It was very intuitive and easy to pick up. And it let you play horror games, like real horror games, if you wanted to get into that. And I just don't feel like cool, beautiful people vamping for cameras is that horrifying. <laughs> it's just kind of, I think it's kind of banal <laughs> and very kind of Instagrammy. And so that has that has cooled me very much to the to the pre-releases. I'm 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 going to buy the books. There's just no doubt about it. I'm going to buy the books, but I haven't been feeling like money burning a hole in my wallet to go pre-order them. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I mean, for the prices they're asking, you might as well buy it from your local game store when it finally gets there, right? Yeah, that was kind of my feeling. I wanted to mm. to hold it in my hot little hands first and kind of check it out before I did anything with it. I will say I really liked the pre-alpha. Um and I know there were people who found it problematic and didn't like it, but to me it mm -hmm. felt kind of grim and, and grimy and seedy. Uh, and I really liked the the beta rule set they put out, the Rusted Veins that we ran at Gen Con. I thought that was great. And to Brendan's point, like the the focus of those games is kind of like very street level um, yeah. and very kind of punk. Uh, and then some of the art direction doesn't really capture that feel like in particular, the cover feels kind of like dreamy and Laurel K Hamilton to me. Um, mm -hmm. And not so much like, you know, this street level kind of punk aesthetic that I was getting out of the, the beta set. Um, I think it's a solid product. I to, like Brendan said, I'm going to buy it. There's just no way I'm not going to buy an edition of vampire, the masquerade. Um, they could replace all of the vampires with twilight vampires and i would probably still end up buying them. so you know i i'm, I'm not willing to go that far with adam that's where adam and i <laughs> I'm, I'm tentatively excited about it but you know i do want to see it first and kind of go through it and and get my my hands on it to kind of feel the finished product i will say i really like the stuff that modifius does and i have several of their other 
game lines. Yeah, Mutant Year Zero. Yeah, Mutant Year Zero is one. Uh, Tales from the Loop's another good one. I've heard really Tales good things about the an amazing book. Yeah, right. I've heard good things about the Conan RPG. They have that really great, that really well received Star Trek RPG. So they put out a quality product. So I don't, I don't feel like it's not in good hands. Yeah, um, we've got a really cool interview with uh, Chris uh, Birch, who runs Modiphius. Um, so we talk about some of like the design aspects of like making these books because obviously Tales from the Loop is so driven by its art. Right. Star Trek, you've got to you know again you've got to really capture the feel of that setting. Like they have to. He was saying like we have to get the color red on the red shirts right, or else we get told off, mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And um, at UK Games Expo, I ran V five beta essentially, so. Mm-hmm. I uh, reached out to um, to White Wolf and Jason Carl and the guys, and they very kindly, under NDA, of course, um, allowed us to. You know, they gave us a good amount of the rules to run the game, like the setting material. We've, I think, we've seen a little, uh, only a, a slither, let's just say, of of these things, and so they, I've got a sense of it. But so, like the hunger mechanics feels really polished it doesn't feel like overbearing like the original alpha mm-hmm. uh, but it, it feels present there's some interesting things to do with humanity that i think we haven't seen before which i quite like again to make it less like hitting you over the hammer with it but also it feels present in the game um but overall it just felt like a refinement of the rusted veins playthrough so and uh yeah, it's just really interesting on that at, at that point. Um, but I think that whole street level thing and the artwork, the thing is, I, I think I understand what um, Brennan was saying about that disconnect of, um, you know, when you see people at these endless nights, vampire balls, is that kind of the, the thing? And how um, it's very polished and very polished photos versus, I think, Mike, would you say like the... the um, what we did for the LARP, it felt a bit more gritty. There's a lot of different things going on. But yeah, the Camarilla bar was very, very polished. But when you got down to the more like anarch kind of vibe, you know, it was a lot of people in like scummy clothing, just like yeah. well, beating each other up. So I don't want to, I don't want um, to get like too, I, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like I need to refine what it is I'm saying here, which, okay. Like, did, did anybody here other than me? I know I know Adam did, but did you guys um, back the uh, Cult Divinity Lost Kickstarter? Oh yeah. yes, I did. So so you, did you guys get your PDFs yesterday? Nope, not yet. Uh, I think it came through on the email, but I need to look at it. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, to check. I I was sitting there and I was like, you know what? I don't, I usually don't look at those because I'm like, whatever. I, I like hard copy books. I'm a physical copy guy. And I was sitting in my room here in LA and I was kind of thinking to myself, I, I, I literally had a, a hard copy of um, The Sword, The Crown, and The uh, un, Unnameable Power or whatever um, in my hand. And I was like, well, the cult book did just drop. So I downloaded it and I looked at it and, and oh my God, is that book just grim. It is grim, it is black. It feels like you just dumped used motor oil all over yourself to flip through it. Now, mm-hmm. that having been said, the product itself is very polished, very yeah. slick. And I have no problem with polished and slick. And I have no problem with, like, 
crisp art and beautiful. I mean, it's, it's all it's all computer art. And I'm usually the guy who's like, why don't they do paintings anymore? You know what I'm saying? Why doesn't Larry Elmore do paintings? I hate this computer art. It's all computer art. It looks amazing. But when you look at the like character archetypes, the monster designs, hmm. the, the, the panoramas of the um, surreal uh, worlds that you're supposed to investigate, it just... It's so pitch black, dark horror that it's kind of gut punch nauseating. And if you guys have like read any of my material, you know that that's my thing. I, I love that. And I, and and what worries me about vampire is that, and I know that Ken Height was like, oh, we're not doing romantic vampires. Vampires, I did Nice Black Agents. Uh, vampires are not romantic. They're grim. They're horrible. They're frightening. They're monsters. And I hear him say that, but then I see a lot of people at vampire balls looking very beautiful. And it's like, oh, I'm not against vampire balls. I've been to some vampire balls. I've done that whole dressing up pageantry thing. That's fun. That's fun. I'm not dogging anybody for having a good time like that. I just want the game to reflect the ability for me to go in there and have just unbelievably pitch black night horror you know what i'm saying does that make yeah. sense i think i don't think i don't think there's any worry i don't think you should worry that vampire's not going to deliver that because i think the the impression i got that you know the camera is like really retracted itself and the base game i feel i'm not because i can't quite confirm what's going to be in the book at all but from what i had access to with what characters i could build for the demo you know we're just going to have the seven core clans and you know the base standard bog game really is you are playing either anarchs or you're playing those low-level neonate camarilla vampires that have been essentially kind of left to your own devices and discarded because the elders are so fearful of this and we use in in quotation marks second inquisition um, you know they've had to they've had to kind of you know cut themselves off a bit more from the world so that kind of like really refined elegant kind of vampire kind of world that courtly intrigue i think is a different kind of game experience that we will see in the camarilla book whereas the anarch book and the more core game book is more about that gritty urban horror where you know you've got to be careful of who you trust because you're the you're more than likely the first ones that are going to have some you know either some someone you know you're either going to be red listed because you've broken the masquerade even further or you know some hunter is going to be taking you out or you know there's massive turf wars going on because you know elders have died left right and center due to revolutions and so forth so I, it feels gritty to me um Good. but then Good. but then yeah. you know i felt and I, I also felt like that got the okay because obviously i wrote up my scenario to use which was i'm going to be perfectly honest was my vampire requiem setting with with uh, serial numbers filed off on it to create a really gritty uh masquerade for for manchester so I, I wanted it to feel really kind of like to me it felt very british and you know because you know you're not gonna the only people it's going to be pretty scary when the only people with guns are basically going to be police force or special operatives or, or the, or the rare hunter. So I feel it's going to be that way. I'm not, obviously I haven't seen the final product, so I can't, I don't know what other art we've got. Um, I did get told one thing though, 
I think the cover artwork, you know, the really dreamy artwork right. on the, the main one. Yeah. yeah, the pink one. That actually, I believe, comes from work that was done on the MMO. It's actually a very old piece of art. Hmm. Interesting. So I mean, it's been around for a while. I'm with Adam, and that particular piece really bothers me mm. because it's it it looks like something you'd see on the shelf at Barnes and Noble in the like paranormal romance section. You know, you know, they, they make fun of those um like torso novels. Have you you know, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I know. Where it's it's a naked torso with like a blue filter over it, and then it has some name like Night Punishments or something. You know, and I'm yeah. like. Ah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. What I, I kind of wish that. It, look, look, and then now you guys are gonna be like, "Oh, you're, you're such an old grognard," and maybe, <laughs> maybe you're right. I, I wish that there had been some green marble with a rose on it somewhere for me to see. That's just, I don't know. Perhaps. Back. Yeah. But maybe that's the reason they haven't done it is to really distinguish it as being a true, different edition. Because again, the rules of it compared to. What you know, versions one, two, th- revised and 20th system wise is in some respects a different game. Oh, it's yeah, a completely I... different edition. I'm sorry, I'm go ahead. Oh, well, I just I feel like when you're looking at the cover, they they could have done something in that vein and made it grim. And and one of my favorite pieces of art, one of my favorite covers is New Wave Requiem. Oh, yeah, God, um, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. very much like that cheesecakey pinup girl with the pearls on but then she's got her fangs out and she's just smeared with blood on that table full of money and cocaine right yeah, right and it's just this grim grotesque piece because it's somewhat titillating but at the same time repulsive mm-hmm. um and i kind of wish they had gone in that direction with it uh i think yeah. that would have been a really strong concept to lead with but what do you think of the other two covers because i think they're quite they're quite have a lot of impact and again i think i think people when they see them i think these books are kind of also have that kind of coffee table look so it doesn't look like just some it's not just your your warhammer book lying around or it's not just some other thing it's like you know a friend will look at it and go oh what's that And you go well it's actually like this you know world-renowned rpg about playing vampires the rules are pretty simple and it's if you've have you read Anne rice have you watched blade have you watched anything (laughs) <laughs> on TV recently yeah. that rips it off. It's that. So, you know, I think it, I think, I think we have to think that it's made, again, it comes down to this. Is it really marketed at, at us? Or right. is it marketed at a larger I, audience they're trying to grab? I like the Anarch cover. I kind of wish yeah. it was trashier or dirtier. Yeah. Um, it looks kind of clean. Um, and I would have kind of liked it if it had looked like it was a back alley, like there were kind of piles of trash or some graffiti. But I feel like okay. that's a strong piece on its own. And, and and I like it. Um, I think that one's well done. It's and, got a real sense of brutalism to it. Yeah, it has a real sense of brutalism. And the, the Camarilla one is another one where I just kind of wish there was more like that wink and the nod, like some kind of blood smear or something on it. Um, I, I think that would have been cool. I actually really like the photo that they're using with the, the kind of black roses over the eyes. I thought that was a really neat idea. Yeah, um, I just kind of wish they had punched it up a little more, but I, I like the Anarch one quite a bit. See, Adam and I are like a mirror on this one because I find that the Anarch one leaves me feeling very cold, 
with the exception of the new Anarch symbol, which um, yeah. I think you guys are talking about the old Anarch symbol and how it was basically just this, like all the other symbols kind of like glommed together and didn't really feel yeah. like anything. And this one actually feels like some kind of like street art or like contemporary design that, you know, the fresh young minds of the Anarchs would, would concoct. I really, I really like it for that reason. But I don't like the cover. The cover to me looks kind of like I'm just kind of like womp womp. It looks like a I don't know, like a covenant, a covenant album cover. You know, <laughs> um, the uh, the Camarilla one, however, I'm like, I'm like, yes, I like this quite a bit. It feels very Camarilla to me. And to be totally honest, it feels Camarilla to me in a way that is very dark and sophisticated. Hmm. In a way that the third edition and maybe twentieth anniversary edition, they I felt like their interpretation of the Camarilla was always so um, like they didn't really get high society, they didn't really get class conflict. It was almost kind of like, oh, these are the vampires who drink their blood with their pinkies up. That's what makes them the Camarilla. Like hmm. they have tuxedos and they have chauffeurs, and that's the difference between a Camarilla vampire and somebody else. And I'm like, I'm like. And really, you see this in Requiem. That's yeah, not yeah, it yeah. at all. That's not it at all. There's so much more nuance that goes into those distinctions. And Chris, to your point about about Requiem, it does seem like they have brought over a lot of ideas from Requiem. And oh yeah, I I, I thought that Requiem. Look, maybe this will make maybe this sounds crazy, but I listen, I listen to your cast all the time. You and I have similar mind of this. I think Requiem is a better game. I think it's a better game. I think it's a better horror game. I think it's a better vampire game. I think it gives you a lot more like latitude to do yeah. the stuff that it is that you want to do. And while it doesn't have the like amazing mythology, and then when they came in, they tried to kind of like shoehorn in like a mythology. I thought it was kind of tepid and I wasn't super into it. To me, it is still the preferable go-to vampire game that I'm going to run at my table. You know? Yeah. There's uh, because of the way the setting's gone. And the kind of oh wow that sounds really cool for the scenario. I I feel like the holes they're creating in the masquerade setting means we can you can bring kind of those ideas and concepts from <clears throat> from Requiem over, but obviously with but embed them in the mythology, and that's really cool because I mean that's pretty much what Mike and I always talk about, right? <laughs> it's yep, like pretty you, much how can we port this over? So like, I'm really really keen to see more information on like the modern Church of Cain in V5 because that at the at the LARP in Berlin was like a really significant part of our roleplay experience, and we were just like, shit, there's these vampires chanting chanting all this religious nut job crap. And I don't think we had that in Masquerade unless we were part of the Sabbat, but to feel like it's kind of a resurgence at the ground level because these two rather what were monolithic groups have kind of disappeared and we're going to get hopefully all these, I kind of want all these heresies to come back, you know, real kind of, you got to have a lot of different fighting heresies for that real end of the world kind of feel. Do you know that, um, okay, when they first announced the uh, the very first V5 Alpha, the one that everybody just hated because it just didn't make any sense, and it was just like a big run-and-gun combat game, just it was yeah. it was bizarro, <laughs> and, they, and that was where we kind of learned about the, the Second Inquisition. They were like, oh, there's this going to be this thing called the Second Inquisition, and I was kind of like, it kind of like, you know, crinkled my face a little bit when I heard that. I was like, eh, I mean, I kind of see where they're coming from. Like, they want to create, like, an external pressure. That's fine. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily see it. Then, 
a few months later, I was flipping through my old Gehenna book. Right? <laughs> and did you know that the the, the the Second Inquisition is in the old Gehenna book? Really? Uh, right. Yeah, okay. Where? There's like a, because there's a, there's like a, the number of different uh, uh, Gehenna scenarios, and in one of them, the one where like they kind of give the fans what they want, where the Antediluvians start rising and everybody just goes to war. Um, there's a paragraph that talks about in order to combat this conflict that is going on on the street level, the church uh, instates a new inquisition, and they put it in caps like that: the new inquisition. And to and uh, to to wage war on these vampires, and then it talks about like how can your characters hope to do battle against paramilitary forces with machine guns and high tech surveillance equipment? And I was like, well, look at that! It's mm. it, it's already canon. So what can I even say? It's actually that made me that made me really turn. I don't know why reading one fucking sentence made me turn on it like that. But I was like, you know what? All right, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Speak guys, so should we uh, continue with the news segment a little bit? Yeah. Is that, is that all we have to say about Now that we've successfully derailed for a while. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, uh, yeah, so as I said, like, uh, um, so the other thing, there's we've got Darkling Up, episode 48, uh, interviewing Matt McElroy from uh, Onyx Path Publishing about uh, you know UK Games Expo releases coming up. So what he was demoing, doing demos of Pugmire, and fetch quest which is meant to be going to kickstarter soon i think um and obviously matt dawkins was at uk games expo running uh they come from beneath the seas i walked in on part him going part way through his game and he was just making sounds all the time to represent some deep one type of weird freak creature um so yeah there's lots of cool stuff going on there and then what's the other thing, Mike? We've got Hairbrained Schemes. They're doing something weird. Yeah, well, uh, Paradox Interactive, who owns White Wolf, um, just purchased Hairbrained Schemes, who are the developers of the Shadowrun and Battletech video games. So I just thought that was really interesting news to bring up because uh, Shadowrun and Battletech are awesome RPG tabletop franchises. So uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, of that coming out soon, I'm sure. Oh, that is and, interesting. I really like yeah. the Battletech game, so... Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So good. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Onyx Path also released the uh, Changeling 20th Book of Freeholds, and also the Prince's Gambit card game is uh, on the streets. So if you want to play some Vampire the Masquerade uh, party games, boom, there you go. Cool. And I think that's it for the news segment. So with that, let's move on over to uh, kind of a topic of highbrow storytelling here, which is the story of Full Metal RPG. <laughs> Topics of highbrow storytelling. Okay, so I mean, we're already we're already thirty minutes into this episode. The <laughs> listeners have a, a got a good feel for you guys, but uh, uh, Adam and Brendan, do you want to kind of go over your street cred a little bit? You know how you got into gaming, how you ends up doing a podcast, and uh, you know just kind of introduce yourselves. Oh wow, um, that's that's a that's a crazy story. So uh, Adam and I actually know each other from high school. If you can fucking believe it. Yeah, so um, the Wayback Machine, the art yeah, classes, yeah. summer art class. And uh, I, I was, I think Adam was class in '96, and I was class in '97. So we've been we've been gaming together for a long time. Um, and we just gamed World of Darkness together for years and years and years. And I moved away to LA, and and then it's interesting. I I, I want I want to tell this anecdote because. When I lived in L.A., I was broke constantly, and all the people who listen to my show have heard this, but 
I had this whole idea that I was like over role playing. I was like, oh man, I'm so cool now. I'm in the music industry, man. I don't do that role playing crap no more. And uh, I didn't have a car. Um, I was just like taking the bus everywhere. And in order to get through the very long bus rides I had to take, I started listening to podcasts. And um, the, pod- the, the first podcast I started listening to was Darker Days Radio. And Darker Days Radio was like years ago, back in like, I don't know, 2013 and 2014. It was like, it was like my friend in Los Angeles. I would, oh, man. Sit, I would, I would listen to you guys and I would like kind of talk along as I was walking from place to place with your takes on things like Mage 20 and uh, uh, Mummy the, the Curse, the new one. And mm. um, it's just such a trip now to be on the show. And I'm so grateful and so thankful to be here actually talking with you guys and not just, you know, talking to the recording of you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, uh, when I got back to Phoenix, when I concluded my LA adventure, I got back to Phoenix, I was hanging around and um, a friend of mine, Ben said, Hey, why don't we do a podcast? And I was like, I listened to a ton of your show and I was like, Hey, that sounds great. That'll be so fun and easy. And we'll just totally really, to light the world of flame with all of our hot role-playing takes. And uh, then I discovered what it's really like to run a podcast, you know? And um, so for the past two and a half, three years, we've been doing Full Metal RPG as our primary uh, 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 role-playing game podcast. And I think at this point into it, we've really found our voice. Um, Adam is now a full, like, partner in the show. The guy who I founded the show with has kind of, like, decided to take a step back and Adam and I just, we get together twice a month to talk about the role playing that we're doing that always kind of has this very grim, dark horror centric feel to it, regardless of whether we're doing science fiction, whether we're doing fantasy. And Even when we try we not to. Horror. <laughs> well, what's that Adam? Even when we try not to, it always ends up very grim, dark. It's um, yeah, that was my comment as I wrapped up Mutant Year Zero last night was I didn't expect this to turn into a Vampire the Masquerade game, and yet it has. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just always kind of, the worm always kind of turns that way for us. You know, personally, I got started way back in the late 80s playing AD&D in middle school with um, some friends of mine at the time. Uh, I moved on to West End Star Wars after that because I was a huge Star Wars geek and I loved Classic. Star Wars game absolutely damned classic <laughs> yeah and so i still have that game that's the one yeah. game through, like all of my trials and tribulations i don't have my ad stuff i got rid of that like some of the other stuff i got rid of but i still have that blue second edition west end games that i bought mm. you know i need i remember where i bought it i bought it at the pavilions in scottsdale there was a little hobby town hobby store there next to a store that sold um original comic art called bow and board uh and that was kind of my mecca. Like I loved that little corner of that shopping plaza because you could go into bound board and you could see like a Chris Claremont, you know, piece uh, or, or um, you know, like a John Romita drawing. And then you could go and the guy would always yell at you because he knew you couldn't afford to buy any of the stuff. And then you could go into the hobby town and look at the games there. And yeah, Star Wars. And then I met Brendan and he kind of cued me in onto like, hey, have you checked out any of this White Wolf stuff? And the first White Wolf book I ever bought was Clan Book Bruja. Hmm. Uh, Still have it to this day. It's a great book. And I just remember looking at the cover for that and just being blown away by it to the point I did like an homage piece for Full Metal RPG uh, 
where I kind of like took that and replaced the Bruja guy with like Cthulhu. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's like, <laughs> this, this is the, this is the first edition one, right? Yeah. With the, uh, dude in the leather jacket. Yeah. The dude in the leather jacket where he's got his fangs out. He's got the die with your boots on button. And so, um, really love that piece. Have always loved the Bradstreet covers. Thought they were amazing. And yeah, we, we played for a long time and then Brendan kind of went off to LA and I got in with a group and they were just very much like a murder hobo kind of group. Hmm. Um, and I remember trying to run Re- Requiem for them and they just didn't get it. They wanted to kind of solve every problem with flamethrowers. Uh, took a step back for a while and then, you know, we all kind of rediscovered role playing, I guess, at around the same time and started running and playing games again. And it's been just a really great journey. We went to Gen Con for the first time, uh, which was a really transformative experience. You know, you get to meet your idols, you get to, you know, I got to go and shake hands with Mark Ryan Hagen and talk to him, which was a cool geek out moment for me. And um, I got to meet the development staff on a game I really love called Shadows of Esterin. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're really great guys. Uh, and that game, I think, is really dark and, and gritty and, and a lot of fun as well. And um, yeah, we've been just pushing it ever since then. We've got our, our Friday night gaming group that we've been doing, and that's been a lot of fun introducing people in the community to new games kind of giving back because we all remember that that old guy when we were younger who was at the game store who would run like shadow run or something for us you know something we had never heard of um and we kind of wanted to to recreate that experience for for the you know more modern crowd and we've been doing cons and all kinds of stuff having a great time doing it nice yeah and that's actually a really great lead into what makes full battle rpg like a lot different than other uh, podcasts that are out there because you guys are really interactive uh, with listeners and local people, people at cons, and uh, you do have like your Friday night gaming, right? Right. Um, we're really fortunate in that uh, we have some gaming luminaries who are active in the local scene. Um, Ken St. Andre and John Wick. Uh, Ken mm-hmm. St. Andre of Tunnels and nice. Trolls and Stormbringer, John Wick of 7C and L5R, and he's done, he's done his you know bibliography goes on forever. Um, and so we get to interact with these guys. We see them at cons. We get to talk to them, which is really great. Uh, and you know, we've been around long enough and we've established a relationship with the local gaming stores that they kind of let us come in and do whatever we want. So we ran a shadow war league for a little while. Um, we do our Friday night gaming thing now. Uh, and so, yeah, we just, we kind of, we feel like we have a different take on role-playing and what role-playing means to us, uh, and you know coming up in that era and then also at the same time discovering all of these new things like the osr movement mm. lamentation of flame princess interacting with guys like diogo noguera from brazil who writes sharp swords and sinister spells um and yeah and oh justin Sorois with beneath the inverted church so we've just gotten to meet all of these really great creators who've inspired mm. us to try our hand at creating content as well yeah because i think that like you know even back in the day when adam and i were like you know, young bloods like freaking carrying around our copies of first edition Storyteller's Guide to the Black Hand in our backpacks at school. I think that we wanted to be involved in that like development angle. And, uh, you know, at the time, it, it, I don't know why as a kid, it just always seemed kind of out of reach. Like it was something that was just like not going to happen. And then, um, just very recently, he and I have 
just really broken into just writing our own stuff. We just, I don't know what it was, but like last year in 2017, we were hanging out with Justin Soroyce a lot and we were just meeting a lot of creators and we just suddenly were like, you know what, F this. We're just going to start writing our own role playing games. And I, I realize that that's definitely like the craze that's sweeping the nation. It's like not by any means something that he and I are, you know, uh, uh, leading the charge on, but it's definitely something that we're really getting a lot out of because it's just been so, so fun to finally sit down and just develop those habits of like writing every day, like writing a thousand words every day and drawing every day and putting together, putting together the thing, like really getting your idea out on the page and rather than like waiting for white wolf, for instance, just as a, for instance, to write a source book that caters directly to your needs to sit, instead think, well, what are my needs and what are the needs of my group and what are the stories I want to tell? And rather than like, how do I hack this system to make it the thing I want to make it? Like, how do I just concoct the game as I see it? You know, and um, he and I have definitely been around long enough and played enough games that we have strong opinions about, like, quote unquote, like how it is, you know? And so we've been starting to lay those things down too. And, and that has been just deeply rewarding. And I, and I hope that we are, and what, what, what I get back from some of our listeners and some of our community is that that word is getting out like, oh, well, let's all let's all do stuff. Let's all create. Let's all kind of elevate the scenes that we're in. Let's build communities. Um, I think that uh, since we started really talking about the Friday Night Role Playing Club, which we founded in October, so it's only been going like, what, like six, seven months or something? And I don't know, I guess eight. And uh, people are, are starting to found them in their own communities, you know, they're starting to like get down to the game store and just and demo games that are other than Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, you know, and I think that 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 level of kind of like diversity in the community and also making sure that one of the things that's in people's faces as being like, this is a type of role playing that you can do is horror role playing. I'm very passionate about horror role playing. It's to me, it's where I've done all my best storytelling. It's where all my greatest games have been. And I just want people to do that and to understand it's a thing that you can do. It doesn't all have to be kind of like, you know, firefly only with fantasy tropes. You know, it can, you can also do like a deep dark horror game, you know, if you want. Yeah, it's really about sharing our excitement for stuff with other people. You know, it's not helpful if you go into a podcast or something and you go, here's this thing that I hate. Because if people weren't mm-hmm. going to check it out, you haven't really done them a service, right? They just go, oh, all right, well, that's fine. Whatever. We, you know, when, when we did the Shadowsworn thing and that kind of folded in on itself, we, we took a, an introspective look back and said, what do we want to do? And we were like, well, it's much more rewarding if we're queuing people in on cool stuff they might not know about otherwise. Uh, and so that's really been kind of our ethos since then is just what are we passionate about? What kind of gets us going? What are we excited about? And let's try and get that out there in front of people so that they can interact with it too. And they can share in our excitement. That was really Adam's team member innovation. I, I can talk shit all day. I, I can just, <laughs> I, I can create a podcast called Brendan Bellyaches about everything. And then, you know, it'd be, it'd be six hours a week. Right. But even the stuff that we do still kind of bellyache at or needle a little bit, we still love on like a deep level. We still love White Wolf games on a deep level. We still love that the the TV show Forever Night on a deep level, despite, Mm. you know, how (laughs) the reviews we have done of that and kind of the gentle mocking or not so gentle mocking we do of that show at times. Um, 
we still love it and and that's really kind of what gets us going and and we enjoy doing it oh yeah definitely it really comes through because uh you know brendan here convinced me to pick up uh nightbane from palladium books which i never thought i'd buy another palladium book ever again but <laughs> yeah. here we are <laughs> yeah, you know, I, think Jamie um, Cassian, Rex, I, I got him to pick up a nightbane book too and he was like this is shit <laughs> <laughs> was the one i picked up um i think it was listening to a review of it or i think you guys were like at least promote you know talking about it on even on facebook was uh was it zaz oh what the hell is it called zaz Erikala? oh zaz Erikala. Oh, yeah. yeah yeah that's a really interesting it's like really that is really grim dark like that yeah, is james vale's work yeah that's super creepy that's I... like kingdom death in an rpg so obviously it is all of my uh role play needs uh in that in that respect yeah when you said that i was like yeah that's really spot on because i've heard you say that before i was like that is spot on it is it is like a kingdom death rpg it is very just grim and, and relentless and bleak and metal and in your face mm. Cool. Um, I think James Vale is one to watch moving forward. Yeah, like mm -hmm. he, he's already uh, working on a second game, and uh, he and I talk, you know, somewhat regularly. And uh, I just, I just think that he's an outstanding talent uh, in this like new generation of gamers that are kind of like we're just seeing all these new developers, people who are just chucking their hats in for the first time. And like, if I was to make a short list of like ones to watch who are like in independent development right now. But who in the next like five to ten years, he would definitely be on the short list for sure. James Vale. Hmm. There's like there's so much going on. Like it was quite clear, and I think when I was talking to the guys at like um, Beasts of War, because obviously they changed their their platform, they were like kind of like quite overwhelmed by the amount of like of this indie RPG kind of scene um, that was prevailing at UK Games Expo, and obviously um, you have got people like Lamentations of the Flame Princess, where it's quite it's a good route if you really want to make a game that's very you in the sense that it really reflects what you enjoy in gaming, what you, the type of stories you want to try and tell and let other people tell and also produce it to like ridiculous, you know, the production levels are quite ridiculous. Like some of the books that, um, that come out from uh, Lamentations are like, you know, seriously kick ass. Uh, one book I haven't still not, gone through because it is freaking huge even in pdf format it's like veins of the earth um again mm -hmm. that's like so bleak <laughs> throughout because you're you're again it's in a very kind of kingdom deathy kind of way you're just like you know uh you know spelunking in hell essentially um and um and you just survival is is very uh unlikely or at least not you're not going to survive for too long um is what other stuff like you know what have you i mean we've, we've talked about lamentation of the flame princess like what kind of books have you noted like in that kind of grim dark kind of um vet, you know, kind of theme because they seem to really cater for that kind of rpg content stuff what for for lotfp yeah um, you know i have to say i'm like behind on my collection um I mean, I, I, I really think that if you're in, if you're interested in like grim dark osr gaming you should consider picking one up because it's so the, the, the core book because it's so it's so accessible in terms of its yeah. price it's twenty dollars for this digest size hardcover core book that is it's 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 well known that, that Reggie James Reggie Jr. who 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 wrote the wrote the game he um he wrote it to uh 
as, as a basic system around which you could write adventures and that the adventures yeah. are really the important things. And so I think if you just start with those classics, which is the core book, which again is very, very small, accessible, and easy to hack. You can sit there and hack the hell out of it and make it whatever game you want super easily. And then it has this very rich and robust magical system that you right. might think to yourself, oh, it's just going to be a bunch of magic missiles and crap like that. Definitely not. The spells are all very unique and very flavorful. So you get a hold of that book. Vornheim mm. is an amazing book for city-based role-playing. That's a classic. Um, it's, so, it's full of great tables. I thought The Fever Swamp um, that's from the Melsonian Arts Council. I thought that was a great little hex crawl for a swamp, which I love. And then you just can't beat Death Frost Doom. It's just a classic adventure. I think that I think that Death Frost Doom in like 20 years is going to be like Keep on the Borderlands. It's it, it's going to be up there with like Keep on the Borderlands and uh, Minds of Fandelver in terms of classic modules. You know. Hmm. I honestly recommend starting with Death Frost Doom first before you get the core, because I think if you grok what he's doing, you know, or what him and, and Zach Smith are doing in that module, um, it'll kind of naturally lead you to the Lamentations core. But right. I think Death Frost Doom is hackable to run under many systems, and if you like what you see in there, um, then you're probably going to like the rest of Lamentations, the Cursed Chateau, the God That Crawls. All of those are really great modules, um, and they can just be run without even having Lamentations. You can just, yeah. with a little twist and a tweak, run them even as a and d or Pathfinder module if you really had to. Um, but I think, you know, to Brendan's point, the Lamentations rests on the strength of those story modules. They're great. They're just really fantastic resources. The thing that I've been like fatting on so hard OSR style lately has been the old uh, Ken St. Andre Stormbringer. Um, that that game is like is mm. unbelievable. Are you guys aware of this game? Yeah, I am. Um, I've heard it's, of it. It was like he, he wrote it just after Tunnels and Trolls, right? Yeah. It's probably like 76, 77. Uh, the first the first edition was published in nineteen eighty one, and all the little oh, okay. the notes in it, all the little like notes from the creator or whatever say copyright nineteen eighty one or like Ken's desk nineteen eighty one. So but it's it's right around there, yeah. But I mean the game is just nice. like unbelievably it's just it's just harsh, it's brutal, it's full of weird magic, it's full of all the kind of darkness and exoticism and intrigue of of the, the young kingdoms and um, like just get your hands on like a copy of that, like first or second edition Stormbringer. Just like, if you really want to play like a brutal OSR game, check out Stormbringer because um, like one of the things that people always talk about with Lamentations or with Dungeon Crawl Classics is they go, Oh my God, your character. It's so easy for them to die. And um, <laughs> Stormbringer, I don't, I don't know if you could play that as an ongoing campaign. Unless you were willing to write up a new character like every few sessions, because I mean, the 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 wall between you and death is just paper thin, just paper thin, and then the kind of like um, growth curve of power in NPCs is actually very similar to Vampire the Masquerade, where it's like your characters are beginning as like thirteenth generation neonates or whatever, but then like it's possible for you to encounter, say you're playing in like you know. Uh, Western Europe, it's popular for you to encounter these Methuselahs and stuff. And in Stormbringer, if you're a first-level character, you encounter somebody who 
uh, is very much like a chaos warrior or something from GW, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a chaos knight. He's like dripping in skulls and he's got like chaos armor and all this like weird magical swords and shit. Like you, you're, you're not going to do anything to that guy. You're not mm-hmm. going to, you're not going to ruin his day or anything. In fact, he's going to like TPK that party. It's time to roll up something new, you know? Yeah. And Ken St. has got some really interesting stories about how he came to develop Stormbringer. Um, and you know his ideas for the magic system of it and then uh the feedback that he got from from michael moorcock about the magic system it's, yeah they're really it's fascinating to talk to him about that game he's just got such a wealth of knowledge mm. nice all right so let's backtrack a little bit um and talk about some of your own writing your own creativity with regard to the podcast because you two beautiful bastards <laughs> have an ingenious idea, which I don't know how I never thought of this, but you guys are making your own zines and uh, publishing them, sending them out to listeners, and it's just really awesome. Could you guys kind of talk about how that uh, came about and uh, kind of some of the content that uh, listeners can expect? Sure. So we fired up a Patreon because we said, hey, we want to do some stuff uh, and we don't want to pay for it out of pocket. So how can we get our listeners to... (laughs) do this for us um, in, in our yeah, own self. That, that was that, that's that's a pretty like crass way i don't know if i necessarily i know I, i'm putting it the worst way that i possibly can because that's what i do no but um we had some things that we wanted to do right uh and and it was one of those things where it's like if we self-finance this it's going to take us forever uh to get there and we said well you know if we're gonna do this we have to give something back right uh, there has to be something that we're creating for people in addition to what we're just giving away, you know, normally um, to kind of entice them into the to the upper echelons of what we're trying to do. And we said, oh, you know, what if we what if we sat? I think it was Brendan who had the idea. It's like, what if we just did these zines? What if we just did these quickie little things? We print them out ourselves, you know, we put them together and it's just kind of a focused on the things that we're interested in. He said, and I'll do one about horror gaming and you can do one about like post-apocalyptic role play. Um we kind of sat on it for a little while and then we're like, no, yeah, sure. That, that sounds like a great idea. Um, and so we started just creating, uh, we've created, we're on issue wrapping up the issue two now. Um, which my issue two is, is way better than issue one was for me. Uh, I learned a lot from doing it and it's just one of those things where as you create, you kind of learn and grow as you do it. Um, and I feel like it's really, it's, it's come a long way just even in the, you know, 60 days or whatever it is that I've been doing it. Uh, Brendan, what, what are your takes on it? Um, well, I mean, that that was definitely in uh, one of those instances of the mistake led to something good, you know? <laughs> like, I think that the original idea was newsletters. It was just going to be – and I literally thought to myself – oh, well, I'll write 500 to 1,000 words, and this will be quick, and it'll make some money for the show. Because really the whole idea is to make money for the show, and the idea of um, putting a paywall between uh, certain like levels of the show and the listeners was just right out. I was just never going to do that. You know, the mm-hmm. show has been free. The show is always going to be free. We wanted to just be – like Adam was saying, there's going to be something extra for people who wanted to engage deeper. So I was like, yeah, it'll be, it'll be so easy. A thousand words a month. Who can't do that, right? <laughs> and then, like, in typical Brendonian fashion, I just couldn't let it let that be. Like, once once we – I, I sort of got – we set a price level on Patreon, 
And I was like, nobody's going to want this. Everybody says, all of our friends are going to go on and they're going to put like a dollar because they pity us. And then people started pledging the high, the high dollar amounts. And we were like, well, shit, now we actually have to write this stuff. So I sat down and started writing and I realized it wasn't going to be any like thousand words. It was like the first, the first issue was 10,000 words. And then mm. on, on horror. And I was like, and this was me trying to get into what I was talking about when I was talking about vampire, which was, I want to go into deep horror. I want, I, I want to start writing a zine that encourages people who are sitting at the table to like really push the envelope because I've been in all these weird, like fucking, um, Facebook conversations with people who keep talking about how like horror is intrinsically problematic, therefore offensive, therefore how can I iron horror content out of my game? And I think actually Chris and I were in the same conversation uh. with a guy who was on a vampire page talking about how can I make the beast not being a vampire game and uh, it was, yeah 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 yep, yep. <laughs> it, it was just like just like yo dog what you're really talking about running is essentially nightbane in a certain way it's superheroes that like wear leather jackets and look like monsters and stuff but that ain't a vampire game that's not a horror game at all yeah uh, this is the this is a big issue i think is um and i think you know, I think we've had some of these conversations. Like, uh, I turn looking for Sam, who who is obviously uh, a massive horror movie um, buff of, and obviously we love horror films going from like you know, kind of yeah, you know, all the way from Hammer uh, and early horror films like that, all the way through to like you know your more modern interpretations, and you know along the way there is like stuff like Saw and all those things in there and sure. what people think is horrific and what is the meaning of horror and like yes it's interesting how you first of all go well there's a difference between horror in the sense of you're repulsed by things that are unnatural um and, and there's that revulsion and then there's like terror which is like yeah, this person's gonna cut you up but that's not but they're two different things and then it's like well horror naturally if it's going to repulse you is mostly going to have a feeling of corruption of what it means to be human and it's like well trying to remove sometimes like you know term you know moods or themes of like if it's something to do with sexuality or to do with body horror or to do with any of those themes it's like well i think if you're going to go in for play, playing horror gaming you kind of got to understand what horror is about about at its root and it is about looking at the human condition and going we're going to take this and we're going to take your happy little world where people have happy families they have children and it's all normal and we're going to start turning these things inside out and it's going to fuck you up you're going to look at it and go yee that's not nice why the fuck are they fucking those fish people um a hundred percent i agree a hundred percent horror is an exaggerated it is an intensely exaggerated story that is designed to make you think about morality to make you think about society about the social contract about what is reality about what does it mean to be a person what do my relationships mean and it's 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 the horror is supposed to text test you and and in doing so i completely agree with the people who see horror content as being problematic because yeah. much of it is 
it's intensely problematic. But what I really try to get across in my zine and in my just my public appearances and like whatever, whenever I'm given a soapbox to stand on, is that engaging horror and the problematic does not mean endorsing. Yeah, yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah, I was listening. I was listening to a horror writer talk about this, and she was talking about writing rape scenes. And she says, "Look, look, if there's a point in your story for a rape scene, then you put it in. But you have there has to be a point to this. And if the point is to create a sort of voyeuristic titillation, yeah, yeah, then you're then you're you're out in the woods somewhere. That, that's not where you want to be." And that's not. And, and when I'm writing horror, and I'm trying to write, and I'm trying to give license in my games to sort of go in this other direction, where so people don't feel like, like, oh, I need to sort of like um, tone down on my horror. I need to turn everything into kind of like this sort of. Because uh, it would really, it would really make me sad if the genre of horror in gaming and everywhere else sort of turned into like the Nightmare Before Christmas, where it's all like, oh, it's a bunch of cute little monsters and stuff. And you can tell if they're monsters, but nothing really scary. Or, or that really tests you ever happens, that would be, to me, a poverty. So with whatever little soapbox or influence it is that I have, I am attempting to create a countervailing motion inside of the subgenre that says, mm. no, let's push back out. Let's really go deep. Let's go and let's find out how deep we can go inside of ourselves where it kind of starts to hurt, where it starts to feel uncomfortable, but let's make sure that we do it with a purpose and that we do it with a conscience. You know what I'm saying? Mm, you have yeah. to be aware. You have to really be aware of this stuff. So, I mean, um, issue two of Horrorism is getting ready to come out. Uh, when I sat down and wrote that thing, I cracked out 20,000 words on Horrorism issue two. And people around me were like, oh, you've got to break it in half. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm such a rebel. I'm not going to break it in half. And I started thinking, oh, how much is this fucking thing going to cost to publish? And I was like, <laughs> I literally, I'm trying to publish a book. Like, I'm trying to publish a source book. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, it's going to break me to to um, to publish this thing because Adam and I, we don't have the Patreon pay for its own rewards. You pay for the Patreon, you get the magazine or whatever. All that money goes into the podcast. It goes into buying gear and taking care of the, like, incidentals that all you guys know, all of the stuff that it takes to do a podcast. And I put the cost of the of the magazine myself, and I was just like, "Yeah, it ain't gonna happen. I can't. I can't. I, I, it's, it's, it's literally gonna cost too much to even do the Patreon rewards." So now, um, issues two and issues three are basically done. Issue two is almost ready to go out the door, and both of those issues are about um, urban horror and about yeah. uh, uh, horror that takes place inside of like. Um, ethnic subcultures and horror okay. that takes place inside of like cross class, like poverty areas and yeah. like, and, and being aware of those subjects and like how to integrate them into your game and how not to whitewash them out, but how to like confront them in like a, in a way that like makes sense in, in a hobby that is in this day and age still predominantly white. Yeah. Like I've talked too much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's cool. Cause like, I think that urban horror and like, um, it's kind of like, uh, if you've read, uh, Howard Ingham's like, um, who wrote for Chronicles of Darkness a lot. Uh, he's got like a book that he did through Kickstarter about, um, folk horror, um, in cinema. And so folk horror is like the witch and like, like I think in gaming terms, folk horror is like the Warhammer world. You know, you're that, those peasants 
out in the farmland and there's the big bad wood and woods and you know what's in there something you don't quite understand and you, you're fearful of like the environment and the the, the flip to that which, yeah and the, and the flip to that is is what's called i think it's been classified as urban weird where you're kind of like you you walk through the streets you walk through the city but you get the sense that it's not quite right and you're kind of aware of it, but it's, it's oppressive to you, but everyone else is kind of oblivious to it. So I'm trying to think of some particular films that kind of get urban weird, urban weird, I think turns up in, um, I guess uh, it follows because that kind of fits with that. You know, they kind of go through the, um, the rundown areas of Detroit um, and you get a sense that that's a very different place to the the place where the main characters kind of like live um and then in uk t- uh films uh urban weird i'm trying to think there's a few good examples oh no actually we we've been re-watching and it's a great example of some of the urban weird stuff and that uh things like uh the hunger tv series that was like you know would have like terence stamp and uh david bowie would like do the introductions and and final kind of comments and highbrow kind of comment about the something about the soul or the nature of life and there's some really good bits in there that you again you get that sense of i'm in this city but this is weird and i'm the only person that kind of sees it and that's kind of freaky and that's kind of maybe makes sense when you say about ethnic ethnic horror because again you're kind of you're not only you separated on a in terms of living in say a rundown area of the city or maybe you live in a in a very opulent life but the culture that you exist in within the city further separates you and so when you encounter kind of horrific elements you kind of it's just you against that and you're the only one that can see it because you're in this very specific place at the right time yeah absolutely uh in issue two i do uh like a deep dive kind of like breakdown of uh, the 1992, I think, I think horror masterpiece Candyman. Oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, mm-hmm. It's it, it's very much what you're describing in terms of urban weird. It's like it's about a white educated female who lives mm-hmm. in essentially a parallel dimension from people who are black poverty class. I mean, she literally in the in the in the movie. There's two housing projects. One is an upscale white project, and one of them is a is a is Cabrini Green, the real actual Cabrini Green. And it turns out the film itself was shot at the real actual Cabrini Green. And in the film, both apartment complexes have the same floor plan, creating this mm-hmm. like parallel world that they both operate in. And then there's this sort of like um, this 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 monster that also lives inside could bring you green and it's about her sort of you know descent into that world and i yeah. think you look at you look at it um for 1992 and these guys they tried to market it as a slasher flick you know yeah right <laughs> but when you but when you look at that movie you're like holy shit there's so much going on in here there's so much going on about men and women about poverty and wealth about uh you know White culture and black culture. It's amazing. Amazing movie. Cool. Um, where do we go from that? Um, so clearly you like your horror. Um, uh, what <laughs> Sorry. Else is, what, I mean, what other type of things are you trying to get into the into the zines then? Like um, of a, of a, yeah, you've got discussions of what of of how to portray horror, um, the types, different types of horror 
uh, genres um, that we've kind of already kind of covered a bit. Uh, what other content is in the zines other than these uh, essays? <laughs> yeah, Adam, what do you got, man? Like, I just have toolkit content in them. Yeah. Uh, mine are all pretty much focused around like uh, just kind of these the idea of zones and post-apocalyptic uh, role-playing games. Okay, yeah. You know, when you go into a place in in the apocalypse, you go into a building or you go to an abandoned hospital or or whatever it is. Like, what? weird thing is in there what little story seed is in there waiting for you right nobody wants to go into like oh you go into the housing development and there's nothing there and it's just kind of boring and mm. um and hey there's no threats so uh it's a toolkit kind of approach and then brendan's first issue he had kind of this mansion toolkit to help you build out you know a mansion um sure so we kind of try to put some toolkit things people can use in their own games and uh yeah, it's just kind of, you know, whatever the focus of your thing is. I like to do mine just to kind of be a little weird um, and a little... Uh, I really like incongruity. I think incongruous things are fun and interesting um, and funny. Mm. And so yeah. uh, I really have a focus on, like, kind of just mashing together two things that really don't belong together um, and just kind of what's the result of that and how would that work and what does that look like. So as far as survivalism is concerned, it's very much just kind of like, hey, here's this building or here's this area you can go to here's the weird thing you can find there here's what the surface layer of what's happening is and then here's what's really kind of happening behind the scenes um that you can uncover as you interact with uh this particular area or the people who inhabit it uh or the monsters that inhabit it and so yeah we have kind of a toolkitty kind of approach it's just kind of to to add value to people mm -hmm. who get it so that they can use it in their own games and go hey is this a thing that i can integrate with or do something with in my own game yeah because that's like, um, I mean, that's that's really wicked. Because sometimes you really, you can be really stuck for like when, yeah, you in when your bloody group of, I don't know, maybe like you're playing mage and the mm -hmm. characters go off and and they the they they get distracted by something like, oh, I'm gonna go into this like house in this kind of area and just kind of fight, see what else is it because it's a rundown house. Maybe there's something useful, and yeah, right. being able to throw in like, well what is lurking in there is it like i don't know like uh like sentient mold that's a that's always some weird like element like the actual black mold is alive i mean that's, right. that's actually in the darkness book but um i think that kind of those things you can throw in because i think what is it is it uh mysterious places for like in first said chronicles of darkness yeah it's such a great book because you just go Oh, they go to a abandoned uh, quarry, and yeah, there's and a like, pool, and it's like, what the hell are the kids doing there? Yeah, and ghost stories, and yeah, they're just kind yeah. of little seeds you can drop into your own games. It's you know, no one wants to go to an abandoned mansion, and it's just an abandoned mansion, and there's nothing there. You want to go into the abandoned mansion and find out it's the terrifying tale of James Magnus, right? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> like that's what you want. You don't want to go like, oh yeah, there's like some water and some mold, and it just kind of sucks. Like you know. <laughs> They should tear it down. You want there to be like, no, there's there's spectral dogs and like this depraved lunatic and, you know, his his equally depraved, but also like kind of tortured wife. And mm -hmm. they want your blood, you know, so. And that's really what's what's great about role playing is you play it to kind of see what happens. Um, mm -hmm. And and those toolkit kind of things are great for that. Cool. And like the, the with the post apocalyptic kind of um uh kind of like these toolkits for post-apocalyptic games is there mm -hmm. like any particular 
games that you normally see it slots in with quite well. I mean, you said mutants. Uh, yeah, mutant you're zero. zero. You could use them in Gamma World. You could use yeah. them in like Omega Zone. There's there's a a wealth of post-apocalyptic games out there, and they all kind of tread the same ground, right? Um, there's a lot of people who just go like, oh, I want to play like Fallout. I want to do yeah. an RPG experience that's like Fallout. And Fallout is very similar. It's like you go to a place, and there's a thing in that place, right? Yeah, uh, and and it's weird, and you interact with it, and and a lot of these, are, you know, like Mutineer Zero is a hex crawl, and it's in this hex, there's this, this, and this, um, and you kind of you can build it on the fly, but you know, it's it's kind of a little, it's not as interesting to me when you just kind of roll on the tables to generate it. Like I, what I like about Mutineer Zero is there's that midsection where they go, here are these very specific, very detailed. Uh, areas that you can go into and the people who live in them and or the monsters that live in them and why they're there and yeah. you know, how are they eking out a living and that's kind of what I wanted to get into was you know hey if you are at a loss and you don't have a thing you can slot into here here are some little see one of them the in the first one I had is the junction and you can just base an entire story off of that I've <laughs> run it at cons just as there's these people and they and it's it's ridiculous and it's like laughable on the face of it but there's these people um and they need your help right like people are going missing from their settlement and the leader of their settlement is a gigantic chicken right <laughs> and so and the turn you know is you come back and you find out like that chicken has been like kidnapping these people and cutting them up and serving them back to the, people <laughs> of the community as payback for you know all of the years of chicken slaughter that that happened before the apocalypse happened um, and his base is actually like an old KFC building. And so it's, you know, I just kind of like these like weird, funny, incongruous concepts where on the face of it, you're like, ha, that's funny. And then you're like, oh, that's kind of gross. So mm. that's really what survivalism's focus has has been for me is just how can I mix together kind of like the 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 on its face funny, but also kind of the profane and, and the the gross and horrific. But horror's always got an element of of humor in it somewhere because it is just so it can be so ridiculous. Yeah, it does. You can on. you can decide the level you want to dial that to, right? Like yeah. there's always that moment in horror movies where there's that relief where you get that like laugh relief before they dial it back in and it's and it's horrific and scary again. You know, one of my side projects or one of my larger projects that's not part of the zines is I'm working on a mashup game that's right. uh that I call Ponies of Sin, and it's it's My Little Pony and Hellraiser, right? right? <laughs> like, 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 right, okay. Cenobites <laughs> from Hellraiser show up in the My Little Pony world, and like, what would that look like? Um, right. And it's it's pretty, it's just ludicrous, right? It's just, it's insane. Um, mm. But I'm having a lot of fun writing it, so... <laughs> Yeah, it sounds awesome. So uh, for Horrorism and Survivalism, you, of course, have the Patreon, but is there any other way that people can uh, pick this up? We, we have a web store on uh, FullMetalRPG.com, and we sell shirts there that support the show, and we also sell um, the copies of the zines that we make that are sort of like left over after we've fulfilled all the Patreon rewards. Uh, additionally, because we are so into kind of like the process of making zines and have kind of like fun and interesting and community driven that is. Um, we've reached out to a number of other zine producers and starting next week, we're going to have four other zines on that web store. So um, if you want a subscription to the zines, 
Uh, the best way to do it is to get the Patreon, and then boom, they'll, you'll just get one a month. You'll just always get one. Um, but then if you want to buy individual uh, issues, and, and again, they're very finite because uh, they're basically it's a Patreon reward, and I think on some level maybe there was like more demand for these things than we initially anticipated when we kind of concocted the idea. So we do throw the remainders up on um, on the FMR or the FullMetalRPG.com web store uh, for afterwards. Nice, awesome. All right, so uh, we'll put links to that in the show notes. And um, oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And uh, you know, we have uh, two more questions here. We also want to do a secret frequency. So if I could get you guys just quickly rapid fire, because this is a World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness primary show, just tell us what your favorite World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness game is. Vampire Requiem, definitely love it. Hey, love that game. It's all right, brilliant, brilliant fucking game. But I mean, the thing is, is, if you just want to run a generic horror game, you cannot go wrong with the Chronicles of Darkness first edition core book. I mean, I know it's maybe like not the best thing in the world to say like the first edition one because it's like I guess you can get it print on demand and you can find them in used bookstores very cheap. But um, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of kind of dumb systems in there that I just don't use. Otherwise, the game is just so crisp, so clean, so easy to pick up for new players. Um, and you know, when people, people write me and they go, Oh, you wrote this horrorism zine and it's got all these like scenarios and stuff in it, but what should I use to run it? And I always just go, the easiest thing is uh, world of darkness, first edition blue book, but my favorite game, vampire requiem. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Vampire the Requiem is a great game. I love that one. It's probably the top. I also really love Wraith the Oblivion. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, just a beautifully dark game. Uh, Difficult to run, difficult to play, but but just a, as a world um, and as a setting book, I think it's just interesting, and I haven't really ever seen anything like it before or since. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, whenever we have people here on the show, we always ask them one question at the end of the interview, which, of course, is, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Do you always ask that? Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, geez, I don't remember that part. I guess I'd be the refrigerator because I'd be full of food. Nice. Okay, that's good. I would be the toaster oven because I'd get to burn things every day, or at least my toaster oven burns things every day. So. <laughs> All right, good. Fair enough, fair enough. Nice. All right, I think that just about wraps up the uh, interview portion here, and uh, we're going to be back here in a second with a secret frequency. On tonight's Secret Frequency, we travel to the city of Fall River. This is a real city, and the events we are about to describe are not embellished, but the truth as far as we understand them from police reports, court records, and the dozens of journalistic interviews. This is a dark history about the terrible acts of real people, and a secret frequency not for the faint of heart. On October 13, 1979, the city of Fall River suffered yet another murder. The body was found behind the Demon Vocational High School, a girl who had been bound by fishing line, sexually violated, battered, bruised, and stabbed in the head. It didn't take long for detectives to learn that this was Doreen Levesque, a 17-year-old runaway and prostitute. But closer examination revealed that this was no normal murder. There had been several assailants, and there was a ritual element, 
it appeared that Doreen had actually been stoned to death. The Fall River police began their investigation asking around the small red light district. They found no leads, other than several drug addicts and criminals mentioning that the devil stalked the alleys. One month later, a man named Andy Maltius entered the Fall River Police Station to file a missing persons report on his girlfriend, the 22-year-old Barbara Raposa. The local vice cops knew Barbara, she was a prostitute, and they also knew Andy, a 44-year-old sadist, pimp, and rapist. Strangely though, Andy walked into the police station holding a Bible and began an interview by stating that, quote, once I worshiped Satan, now I worship Jesus, end quote. Andy's statements went on to describe that he and his girlfriend Barbara had been Satanists and members of a local cult. He also informed the police that Doreen Levesque, murdered a month ago, had been in their cult. The police weren't buying it, so Andy offered to introduce them to two other members. Karen Marsden and Robin Murphy couldn't have been more different in their initial interview. Karen, a prostitute and single mother, was tense, nervous, and talkative, revealing that uh, you know, what she knew of the criminal underground and openly discussing that she and Robin Murphy were roommates and lovers. Robin, on the other hand, was quiet, constantly scowling at the other woman. But by the end of the interview, she revealed that their pimp, Carl Drew, had murdered Doreen Levesque. Karen, and especially Robin, were quick to illustrate that Carl Drew was the ringleader of a motley satanic cult coercing newcomers into prostitution and retaining them with drugs and threats. The investigation continued, and local police came into contact with another leader in the cult, a prostitute named Sonny. Major Crimes Division even went uh, to her project's apartment to view a satanic ritual, describing it as a mass led by an unknown prostitute from nearby Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, with a large mural of the devil and congregants forming a circle and chanting, Hail Satan. Now, this all seems very tame, but uh, Sonny described another branch of the cult that met for black masses in the nearby Freetown State Forest. Ones where the blood of goats and stray cats uh, were used to perform mock baptisms, and participants would faint or speak in tongues. Sonny claimed, quote, You can tell when Satan is there. Some people even let him speak through them in his own language. It isn't human speech. There's no way anyone on earth could fake it. End quote. On January 26, 1980, the frozen corpse of Barbara Raposa was discovered behind an old paper mill. Her wrists were bound by fishing line, her body violated, and her skull was crushed by a rock. Her boyfriend and pimp, the aforementioned Andy Maltius, was the prime suspect, revealing far too many details about the murder, uh, which he claimed to be from a psychic dream. Police promptly arrested him. But despite the testimony by Robin Murphy, uh, she claimed that the tumors were unconnected, but the forensic evidence was far too similar. Police kept pressing the prostitute's sources until, in February 1980, Karen Marsden was reported missing. Next month, her half of her skull was found at Duval Pond in the neighboring Westport, uh, along with the carcasses of three cats, sheep's bones, and clumps of human hair. 
At this point, uh, there had been three murders, and it didn't take long for the satanic cult of Fall River to collapse upon itself. Robin Murphy's testimonies were called into question, and she eventually broke down, admitting to the murder of Marsden and assisting with the murders of Levesque and Raposa. With all the testimonies and evidence, Fall River police charged Robin Murphy and Carl Drew, who had already been uh, in jail on an unrelated offense. And uh, they also began to comb the Freetown State Forest for evidence of the aforementioned black masses, and found quite a bit of evidence. An altar was found in the woods, a flat slab of stone, with evidence of torches and animal blood all around it. Additionally, they found a crude, filthy log shack uh, with a tarp roof that cult members claimed was used for orgies. There was no further evidence of human murder or sacrifice, however. The prosecution of Andy Maltius, Robin Murphy, and Carl Drew took years and continued through the height of the United States' satanic ritual abuse moral panic, causing quite the media frenzy. But all along, perhaps the media was right to be afraid. Because every year, a new disturbance was noted. Dozens of calves were mutilated, the corpse of an 1868 settler was exhumed and stolen, and in 1988, a bunker was discovered in the state forest filled with tattered children's clothes and dolls with their eyes gouged out. The cult, it seems, lived on. So what do you guys think? Uh, do you have any good ideas for how to use this in the uh, world of darkness? I think this is a great scenario. Uh, I, I really love that you brought this here. This is this is exactly the kind of stuff that I, I personally love to run and that, like, you know, I love to see at the table. Um, to me, the first thing that really jumps out about it is uh, the dichotomy between this the urban story, like Chris and I were talking about, and the um, mm -hmm. folk story, you know? That mm -hmm. there's this, this really deep kind of... Um, you, you, could, you, could, you could run a chronicle in two segments, you know? The the beginning of the mystery, the unfolding of the primary facts of the case have this like incredibly urban feel to it with like uh, this, this particular area that's being run by um, like pimps and prostitution. It's very grimy. There's a lot of um, like, you know, drug use and uh, like, like poverty. Um, and then at a certain point, the story kind of changes and it moves into the woods, right? It becomes this. It becomes this uh, sort of folkloric story that's got like tall trees and like mist shrouded ground, and you're kind of you're out there by yourself trying to figure out what it is that's around you, you know. Um, so the tonal variations there, in terms of like the environment, I think are just are almost like they're like characters unto themselves, you know. And I I, I just want to want to jump into that immediately. Yeah, that's a really, uh, really great point about just the uh, the different kind of stories you could tell with this. Um, this is all true. This all really happened. Uh, Robin Murphy actually just came up for parole and was uh, soundly denied. Um, so if I was to use this in my own game, I, I would definitely want to, as unfortunate as it is, just focus on the fact that these, these are real people doing such things. I would, uh, of course, make my own you know version of this. But I would, I would certainly focus on just mortal elements, just kind of the how terrible people can be, as opposed to you know using the supernatural or monsters as a crutch. You know, it can come up in a lot of different ways. Uh, just the fact that these 
this kind of motley thrown together satanic cult exists, which I assume is really just uh, a method of control for Carl Drew uh, over his uh, over the the, the prostitutes uh, that he was pimping out. But yeah, just kind of this, this method of control, which would, of course, if you're playing a World of Darkness game or something like that, uh, that's drawing a lot of attention to perhaps like the Camarilla or, or demons or something like that. And they're going to want to stop it just for their own kind of existential means. Mm. Uh, something really interesting that I didn't bring up in this, because um, there's, there's a lot more details. There are entire books written about this, uh, this Fall River cult. When Marsden was killed, one of the things they did was the, the cult members cut off her middle finger so that she would know pain uh, at the very end, which is kind of ridiculous because they're already probably stoning this woman to death. Now, this is actually really interesting because if you look into the satanic panic uh, scare that was going on in the 80s, one of the things that um, uh, the guy's name was Joseph Posden, uh, this, psych- this crack psychologist, um, was bringing up was that he-, he-, he tried to tell people that you could tell a Satanist by the fact that their middle finger was cut off. So it's interesting that this could have been a misinterpretation. It was someone that they, was, they were targeting, that Satanists were targeting, or was being kicked out that had their, their middle finger cut off. So that can just be like a very small tease to a uh, part of the occult mystery here. If you wanted to use this, or at least use this as a basis for constructing uh, quite a more elaborate kind of conspiracy, um, I would actually go kind of the other way. Um, and the whole you know satanic panic and moral panic and someone in a position of authority being able to uh use that situation this is all just you know this is all just mortals this is just normal people i say normal people are people doing horrible things driven to do horrible things due to their circumstance and that in itself as we said with urban weird and and with uh you know it, it's that in itself is horrific uh, and is enough for your your mages and your or your werewolves or, or whoever is involved in getting uh, getting the the hint that this is going on. That's enough to just make them repulsed. But I kind of like the idea that maybe these kind of small scenarios uh, are instigated or at least found and used by someone in a position of authority, like this psychologist to use it for his own gain so it's this kind of cult so he can develop a cult of personality which is which operates above this but he has to create the the bogeyman out there for him to gain the level of control that he wants and his level of control may also have a cult of its own which operates at completely the other end of the other strata of society at this you know with you know say he's manipulating celebrities and judges and so forth who exist within um, who have joined some sort of uh, charity work that he is using and so he has some other form of indoctrination for that and of course as I go into that maybe that is where the true occult horror is is in, in that and that he's luring people in who have good souls maybe and it's their corruption through through their targeting of unfortunate poor people who've been drawn into into these false cults so it's kind of almost like mystery cults and so forth if that makes sense 
Yeah, definitely. And here's another actually little throwaway history fact. Um, you know, it's mentioned that the leader of the uh, uh, one black mass that the detectives attended was a uh, prostitute from Providence, Rhode Island. And interestingly, Providence, Rhode Island used to have legal po- uh, prostitution until 2008. Uh, you just could only do it indoors, couldn't do it outdoors. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to have that link and uh, look at the fact that there may be, of course, another branch, but one that uh, may uh, have slightly better conditions. Um, and that could be used, as Christy were kind of alluding to, with these different uh, tiers mm. within the cult uh, as kind of like a reward system uh, for those that were in the much less fortunate uh, Fall River uh, situation. Yeah, I like the idea of cells. There are different cells of the, the coven or of the cult, and that um, as the uh, investigators begin to sort of peel back the layers of reality, then they can they can actually find that um, there's like a spider web, you know. And then, to be totally honest, it doesn't even have to be like a super centralized spider web. I mean, what if there the um, axis of authority inside of this cult was not vertical, but it was like horizontal? And that by um, splitting off and forming like little splinter cells, uh, you you were able to almost, almost like the way like the Jewish faith doesn't have like a um, a supreme leader. You know what I'm saying? A, a supreme moral authority. That you can kind of become your own moral authority uh, by splitting up, spl- splitting off and forming your own faction of the cult. But that doesn't like break you from the main body. You know. But that that is in fact how it spreads. I think that that would be very interesting and horrifying to uncover, you know? Especially if you were to do something kind of um, like uh, Chronicles of Darkness with it, where it's like, as the characters travel from state to state in their attempts to kind of like stamp out the little flames of the of the cult, they start noticing these um, like symbols that have been carved into like the... the uh, walls of truck stop bathrooms and like um like flyers roughly photocopied and then like stained by by rain and gutters and stuff and then you just begin to realize that there is not a central cancer that can be excised that it is in fact a a network that just moves through veins does that make sense yeah, that's very similar to one of the things in um, one of the Demon the Descent books, isn't it? With the mimetic kind of virus, the these concepts um, of the God Machine that essentially persist and is it like jumps around and obviously uh, creates. You know what what it's causing in people is not actually tied. It's not tied to any infrastructure because it should have performed its task and then obviously self-deleted whatever or have been scrubbed by an angel of of the god machine but the idea as you say like it these different splinter cells they operate at a horizontal level that might be because it's it's an idea that kind of it just needs that bit to then jump onto the next location and then jump onto the next location of course you could have them that they are purposely all connected and that is the operation of some grand piece of infrastructure well, I think it's Ooh, that's dark. That's that's grim. I like it. But then, and then that where, where that gets worse is obviously, as you said, as you're peeling away um, the layers and understanding, you know, these these cells don't operate n- knowing of each other, 
which actually then begins to reveal that you might people that you know in another town, family, or people in authority that you turn to, actually are part of another cult, which is a, a very distant cousin of it. And in some respects, the only reason they're helping you, you know, um, get rid of the the current issue, the current cult that you're targeting on, is actually to cover up their shit as well. Ooh, turnabout is fair, fair play. I like that. Yeah. This is a really <laughs> grim, like, human story. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's so much you could do with it. Uh, you know, you could just take it and run it as is, as just there's these, you know, human psychopaths. And, you know, if you're a hunter or, you know, an investigator or whatever, just with the core book, what do you do when it turns out this is just a purely human evil? Um, yeah. And digging into it, investigating it, peel back those layers. If you wanted to put a supernatural sheen on it i mean this could easily be some kind of bali cult uh you know operating and doing these things or pushing these people to do these things as you know some kind of ghoul cult something like that and you could find out that that's what's actually going on behind the scenes uh I kind of like world. Carl Drew as a Dobby Revenant. Right, yeah, he could be a Dobby Revenant. It's if you really want to put something on, on him, I feel like he'd be great as a Dobby Revenant. Yeah, um, or if you're doing werewolf, he could be like possessed, like a spirit possessed or a bane possessed human. Um, yeah. Who's out just like feeding the worm for mage. It could be some kind of nefandy thing going on, some kind of infernalist thing going on. It could be a very real evil behind all of this stuff, a very supernatural evil, or it could just be regular humans who are just, they've gone off, you know, they've gone off into the woods and they're slaughtering each other because they have, you know, seen too much or, or they've become infected by the world around them, the supernatural world around them. There's really great other ways that you can connect. I mean, I would also consider you might use this as the lead-in to, um, say, the Midnight Circus, because you know these are all leftover. You know, these are people that have attended the circus when it was there, and it's obviously, you know, those hooks have got into them and corrupted them, and this is their way of almost they're drawn together by that need to go back to the circus but it's not there so they they start their own little local rituals that maybe incorporate their local folklore to express their dark desires oh kind of like a cargo cult where they (laughs) they just go through the motions trying to get the airplanes to come back right yeah yeah exactly right and and then the other thing which is kind of similar and i mean we watched it uh (laughs) me and sam watched it recently because um, it's one of our favorite horror films of, of recent years, is, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's Sinister, where, again, um, in that, you know, the mystery is because you, you move along to the next location, it continues this persistent uh, demon which is feeding, uh, and it goes from location to location. So there's a whole host of, like, this could be, it's just very good procedural investigation. And I think, unfortunately, by reading these real world things and sometimes reality is weirder than fiction um it can better inform you if you really want to write for your horror games what how does how do people in a cult actually work why why does one person hold power over other people i mean you only have to look at a certain ex smallville actress recently and that's completely yep. fucking bizarre. Right. And, bizarre. Yeah. and that, and I say that's that's a, that's a, a different end of society. That is 
actors and actresses and you know people in media and that's like you know trying to entice them into these things god knows what else is going on or has gone on in hollywood or 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 the fact thanks to like the internet you know again going back to the splinter cell thing do cult do these uh, is the one thing that connects these cults is like the um kind of old kind of like um you know web servers and so forth and the dark net even um that's how they you know share their their ritual workings but again it's just humans sharing fucked up shit over the internet right. or what if it's like an unreliable narrator situation yeah because yeah. you've got quite a bit of, quite a bit of that in there where it's like in that movie the witch where you're not really sure if it's actually yes. happening or if they're just hallucinating uh all of this stuff that's going on that could be another direction you could go with it I think it could be fun to do the angle of humans are the real monsters, and I would like, like, like we've kind of hit on already, so that the characters, especially if you're proceeding from the, the position of the characters as investigators, investigative horror, so the characters are going along, they're investigating all of this, and it really is beginning to feel like, oh, this is, as Michael was saying, um, this is uh, Carl Drew, he's using these psychological tools to ply these unfortunate people. Um, and just when they think they've got it all pegged down to this is just grim human behavior, then something else begins to manifest. And that as we learn what that is, it turns out that there was just some being, you know, some negative energy being that was floating through the world and it found this thing. It found this thing that these humans were already doing and then it was like, well, shit, I can feed on this. I can insinuate myself into this thing that they are already doing, and I can use it to make myself more powerful. And once the characters begin dismantling that infrastructure for them, then they, then the, the, the actual supernatural being itself has to retort. But the Carl Drew himself is basically just a mundane individual. It ties in so well with Slasher as well, because that book yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So, like, Hunt, this is all just great stuff for, like, Hunter as well. Like, um, but then that gets really creepy, because, like, some of the, the conspiracies and compacts in Hunter would see this as ample opportunity for recruitment. <laughs> did, did you guys read the uh, article that Michael linked um, about where was a bit more of, like, a, uh, there was a lot more detail about the, um, about the article about the about the the, the, the killings um yeah there was really it, really it was kind gruesome. of uh-huh. gruesome and grotesque yeah. particularly uh, when it gets into uh the the one young woman and and uh, uh karen marsden and what happened to her like what her final moments on the earth were like yeah that yeah we're not a we're not an explicit yeah. podcast so I had to, no uh, for sure and and it was i was just reading out. it just going like ugh, it was a free yeah I I, uh, I really focused on the um, the Drew the Carl Drew character. He he's he's just he, he was so himself an obvious like product of just these horrifying circumstances. In the one little section where it narrates this uh, part of like him growing up and his his father like lowered him into a well with like his his feet his feet bound. So they lowered him down head first into a well to collect up drowned rats <laughs> to get out of their well, like as a child. And I'm just like, that image itself, I mean, you need to put that in your game. You need to find some way to get that into your game. 
you know that's just that's just i mean it, it's it's that's so dark there's so much going on there that that needs to be at the table i think yeah, that could be even just a little clue that gets left at every murder scene as like a drowned rat, right? Next to the body. Just some kind of deep psychological trauma. Mm. Yeah, I was just really struck by the by the tragedy of Karen who was saying, like, these this this is going to happen, and if it does, this is the person who killed me, and then you know they sent her out and then she of course is reported missing. Yeah. Uh, so we'll definitely include a, a link to this in the show notes so you get all the details, because, of course, I had to summarize. Uh, it was probably like several pages, and of course, as I mentioned, people write entire books about this. Um, but I'd actually never heard about it until like a couple days ago, and I was kind of surprised and interested because I've never read about an actual satanic cult. So I figured it'd be good to bring up here on the uh, on the show. Oh, for sure. Thanks for bringing it up. That was... Uh, yeah, no I won't say I enjoyed reading it, but um, <laughs> I, I learned some things reading it, and it was yeah. uh, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. All right, and uh, let's start wrapping up the show here. So, of course, uh, you know we're going to put links in the show notes to uh, horrorism, survivalism, and all that good stuff. Uh, we pretty much always have a link to Full Metal RPG in the show notes, so that'll be there too. And um, I think it would be good uh, if uh, Adam and Brenda, you could kind of just let people know where they can find Full Metal RPG if they want to interact with you guys on social media and that sort of thing. Well, um, I do the Instagram. So at Full Metal RPG on Instagram uh, is where is a great place to get a hold of me. And uh, I've had some stuff going on at work, so that I wasn't able to be on there as much as I kind of would have liked. But I'm going to be on there a lot more. So at Full Metal RPG on Instagram, and then the Full Metal RPG uh, Facebook page. I also am the predominant contributor there. So if you want to get a hold of us there. Um, I'm there a lot. Also, if you want to email the show directly, like if you feel like you're in this kind of game that we're doing, if you want to be part of that kind of thing, maybe you want to be on the show or contribute somehow, uh, fullmetalrpgofficial at gmail.com. I answer that email uh, directly, and so that you'll get a hold of me directly. Adam, where are some other ways people can interact with us? Sure, we got the Patreon. It's Full Metal RPG on Patreon. Just do a search for us there. We'll come right up. Uh, and we've got the FullMetalRPG.com website. So you can just head right out, FullMetalRPG.com. And we post all of our reviews and text of games out there uh, and links to all of our episodes. Um, so there is a ton of content. We're working on generating more out there. Uh, so that is another good way to interact with us and, and interact with the show. We just want to take a second while we have a second and just really thank both of you guys for the way that you have championed our show over the years and introduced so many people to us through your really strong recommendations. We love Darker Days Radio. We are big fans of the show. I'm fans of each of you in particular as people and the content that you put out. So it's been really humbling for us to be here. It's it's literally the culmination of a bucket list thing. I'm now one step closer to death. Because yeah. And, <laughs> and Chris, I really want you to start putting out painting tutorials because... Uh, oh, that <laughs> amazing. Takes freaking ages it to do. It takes ages, but... I know, but they look so gorgeous. I'm um, super jealous. That mostly will happen once I finally buy a haunted house. I don't know. I say haunted house. <laughs> We're buying a house and obviously... Um, you know, we live in, like, I don't know, any part, 
I'm I'm slowly trying to delve into the the haunted like history of Sheffield, and we really need to go to like um, stuff. But like, yeah, once we've got that sorted out, I think we'll I'll try and do some more video content and photos. Like, I've got um, uh, another copy of the Phoenix for Kingdom Death because I'm painting it for Beast of War, so I don't have to take mine on a plane nice. <laughs> anymore. I'm so fed up with that. So yeah, I'll hopefully do that. But yeah, thank you. It's like I've. I feel I found my painting recently. Like I finally reached a level, so I'm glad you appreciate it. And oh yeah, it's gorgeous. People I like love it. what you're doing. It's not rocket science, but it takes a bit of practice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, well, thank you to both you guys for everything you do for the podcast community, for the gaming community, for the horror community. I mean, Dark Days Radio is one of my top favorite podcasts forever. So thank you both, and thank you for having us on. Well, really appreciate thank that. You, uh, definitely, and uh, hey. Listen, right back at you, because uh, I only listen to, don't tell anyone, I only listen to three <laughs> podcasts right now, and one of them is Full Metal RPG. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you guys do great work over there, and uh, really happy to have you here on the show and talk about all the great work you're doing. Indeed. So, yeah, I think that's that's it for this episode. And, um, of course, Adam, Brendan, thank you very much for being here. Chris, thank you as well. And listeners, have a good night. See ya. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. <laughs>